Welcome back to Across the Movie Hour, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am so happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, The French Connection has been censored. And film fans are none too pleased. Uh, William Friedkin's 1971 classic, which won Best Picture and four other trophies at the 1972 Oscars, has had a few seconds snipped from it, in which Popeye Doyle, the policeman played by Gene Hackman, uh, drops the N-word in discussion with a fellow cop. Uh, the nine seconds or so of dialogue is snipped in the least artful way possible. They, they basically just skip ahead in the movie. It's like the cinematic equivalent of cutting a paragraph out of a book and just leaving the rest of the book intact. There's some question as to which corporate entity exactly cut the footage. Most have blamed Disney for the edits as Disney acquired the film and it purchased 20th Century Fox. Though some online people have suggested that the version that is uh, causing so much trouble now has been in circulation for a few years, meaning the trim could have come while the film was owned by 20th Century Fox. Regardless, there are a couple of interesting things here. All right, interesting thing the first. Essentially, all digital copies in the United States have been edited. And I, I don't just mean those that are streaming, like on the Criterion channel, which I think is where this was first noticed. Drew McQueenie reported that the digital copy he purchased years ago has also been censored. Meanwhile, a commenter at Hollywood Elsewhere noted that the version showing on Turner Classic Movies has also been trimmed, while another noted that the version of the film shown at the Repertory House uh, American Cinematheque also had been edited, which which is important because they were showing a DCP, a digital cinema package. All of this suggests to me it's a licensing thing. The digital license is now officially this edited version. That's the only one you can get in the United States digitally. Um, and this is where I would normally tell you to buy physical media. And I would rant for, for minutes on end about that. But you all know where I stand, so I'll spare you. Uh, interesting thing, the second. Internationally where there is presumably a different rights deal for digital distribution, the uncensored version is in circulation, which means this has only been censored for American audiences. This is obviously insane, except not, not really. Let's hike back up the slippery slope here for a second, all right? Because as part of the cultural revolution we've gone through these last few years, lots of well-meaning people, including I think all three of us on this show at one point, have argued that trigger warnings, context labels, et cetera, on historical pieces of art are good because they give people context for things that they find offensive. I've never loved this idea, but I've always just kind of accepted it as a compromise folks could live with. But the harshest critics of these labels uh, on films like Gone with the Wind, say, have, I think, more or less turned out to be correct, right? Here's the thing. If you're an adult, you should be able to handle seeing things you find offensive and understand that different times mean different contexts, uh, which allow for different things, and they have, again, different meanings. If you need a trigger warning or a context label or whatever to uh, allow something like that to exist, you do not have an adult's understanding of the world. You have an, a, a child's understanding of the world. You see the world as a child. You don't understand it. And we treat children differently than we treat adults. We withhold certain works from them that they simply won't be able to process. This is fundamentally what the fight over school libraries in Florida uh, and other places is about, right? What you make available to children and at what age. And obviously, lots of this goes overboard. Some of the things that are withheld are wrong. The fighting over that line is the issue. The end result of these warnings was always going to be removal. I, frankly, regret giving an inch now. I regret giving that inch when I should have seen the mile that was going to be grabbed. Um, Alyssa, again, I, I, I feel like you, you have really argued strongly for labels like this, for things like 
here's why what Popeye Doyle says is bad and why cops in this era are portrayed this way. Am I being overly dramatic here, or are we seeing the first movement in a slow-motion erasure of historically troubling art? Uh, oh, man. Okay. So this is tricky in part because I think we are— it's possible that this conversation is clumping together a, diff- a number of things that would be useful to separate out a little bit. And I think what we're seeing, and again, you know, there are some details that we don't know about the censorship of the French connection, is I don't know that we were seeing like a widespread call for like Popeye Doyle to be censored. You know, it's not clear that this is done sort of at the behest of a specific group organization, it's much more likely to be a case of sort of corporate ass covering. That is my guess. Um, Is that your sense as well? I mean, it appears to have been a decision sort of made at the corporate level. None of us know of a specific sort of pressure campaign here. Similar to what we saw in the case of Roald Dahl, right, where the company preemptively decided we're going to bring in sensitivity readers and they're going to make the books better or, you know, some of the Agatha Christie books, etc. Right. And so I think it's worth making the point that, you know, I don't think there is an active community of people asking for trigger warnings who also asked for this, right? You know, I think it's, I mean, I think it's worth separating this out as sort of a corporate response to broader but more free-floating public sentiment. Because I, activists overreach, but it's worth being clear about why something is happening. Second is, look, I think that broadly... I am someone who is temperamentally inclined towards compromises in the culture wars that give people more choices and more information and let them make their own decisions. And I think I have probably been overly optimistic about the extent to which that would be satisfying to individual partisans in the culture war, the extent to which corporations and even sort of private organizations are willing to do the work of tabulating and making that information available. And, you know, honestly, the extent to which individual people are willing to do that work as opposed to, you know, calling for broader censorship regimes. And so I don't know that I think it's wrong to say, you know, like if there is a world where there is ample, incredibly detailed content labeling and people act like responsible consumers according to their own needs and preferences, that is still the world I would prefer to live in. I don't think this is the world that we've got, right? I mean, obviously, as I've written, you know, we have situations where parents would rather librarians censor libraries than like accompany their own kids to pick out books. You know, we we have situations where, you know, corporations would rather posthumously edit great works of art than defend them or provide people more information about which to make decisions. We obviously have a world in which people who claim to be incredibly offended about things don't go, for example, and like Google amply available scripts for a lot of these movies if they're that sensitive about stuff. So we don't we don't live in the world that I wish we lived in. Instead, we live in one that is full of both a lot of outrage and laziness and, you know, sort of damaging corporate ass covering. And in this case, you know, I, I don't know that it's fair to go out and blame activists, but um, it's not good for sure. Well, it's not it's not so much that I'm blaming activists specifically so much as the mindset that accompanies the urge to slap warnings and labels on everything and say, you know, well, 
we need to have a discussion about Gone with the Wind and how it's Confederate Apologia. Like, I'm sorry if you can't if you can't figure that out, if you can't do the research on your own, like you're not a person who it is worth catering to, in my opinion. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think it's I think it's good that there are people who are putting together sort of independent databases or recommendation guides. I mean, look, I think we'd all rather have, you know, the common sense media parents guides to media than a much more sort of censorious access regime for TV and movies. You know, I follow an Instagram account that's run by a couple of conservative homeschool moms that, you know, is about which books to recommend and which books to avoid based on their values. And I often, like, I radically disagree with a lot of their recommendations about what to avoid. But I think it's, you know, it's a good thing that they're doing the work for like-minded parents and that like-minded parents can find resources like that. And so and the idea that there would be a universally satisfactory, universally applicable, implementable labeling regimen is a fantasy. But I think that more information provided by more venues is a good thing. But it's like we have we have a free media republic if you can keep it. And, you know, I think both some people who are rage addicts and some really cowardly corporations are not that interested in keeping it. Peter, uh, one thing that always happens when I bring this up on social media and elsewhere is that somebody will say, well, I mean, this is really capitalism's fault, if you think about it, because capitalism has made it uh, so that the corporations only want to make these things that they can sell to people. And, you know, if they if they can't sell it because it's offensive, well, then that's that's capitalism. And that response drives me nuts for a bunch of reasons. But the biggest of them is that it just kicks the can down the road. I mean, it's not like capitalism is doing this in a vacuum. They're responding to a sentiment in the public that has been created and fostered and nurtured in ways that I think are really destructive to the general appreciation of art. Yeah, I think that's right in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, we should say the all, the rights owners to this film have the right to to eliminate whatever they want from the movie and to change whatever's in circulation. That's how IP works. And Sonny, you love intellectual property. You love it when corporations and artists and people and private entities own art. And this is this is what happens when when uh, private entities own have that right. They can change it. On the other hand, you also love owning your own copy of things that can't be changed because you already own it. That's also good. So ownership both makes it possible for you to have your old DVD of this, and it also makes possible the whatever the weird licensing issue is here. And I do agree that it is. It's not totally clear which entity caused this to happen, and it's also notable that it's only in the United States and not even in the UK or Canada, right? So even in closely linked English-speaking markets, it has not been censored, and you can still get the original cut. So it's a little little bit of an odd thing here, but it's fairly obvious that it was censored for offensiveness, and it, it's really kind of bizarre. And that's what strikes me about this particular edit, because the bit that was censored was put into the film explicitly to show that Gene Hackman's character was an awful racist cop. And it was not there to like say, and that's fine. It was the opposite. It was really the, it was very much the opposite. It was intentionally put there to show that he was emblematic, not just that he was uh, racist, but that he was emblematic of a racist policing system. So there's a bit 
in a documentary that uh, about the making of the movie that Thomas Chatterton Williams of The Atlantic wrote up in which uh, Roy Scheider, who's also in this movie, um, recalls seeing this uh, movie with a black audience in Harlem at the time and how satisfied they were to finally see the reality that they knew to be real, right? That they, their experience of policing in New York and Harlem and, you know, um, and uh, and some of the neighborhoods, that they that, oh yes, this is actually reflecting my experience of the world. And to eliminate it is, is such a bizarre choice that just fundamentally misunderstands what that was about because it's it wasn't to, to hold it up as great. It was to say this is the real ugly reality of policing in New York and the fact that it's just it's not just kind of implicitly low level sort of secretly racist. Some of these cops are just out and out racists. And again, this is, wasn't even like a weird idea at the time. Something I distinctly remember from being a kid is finding one of uh, my my father's stash of mad magazines. And Mad Magazine was a big deal because they had movie parodies in Mad Magazine. And this was how, in, fa in fact, how I learned about a lot of movies that I was not allowed to see. And I found my dad's uh, stash from the 1970s of Mad Magazines, one of which contained Mad's parody of The French Connection. And the whole gag about Gene Hackman's character in the Mad Magazine parody was just about how, how ridiculously blatantly racist he was. And it was like, because it was so under, it was understood that that was the point of the movie. In some ways, they, they almost felt like mad, which was famously sort of left-leaning, like, you know, sort of anti-racist publication, like was making fun of how how out front this movie was in, in sort of portraying that. And so it's like, again, it's just a total misreading of the art and the history. And it's, it's sanitizing the past in a way that doesn't do anyone any favors. If you are an anti-racist activist, which, first of all, great. Second of all, we should want depictions of this in the world, especially historical depictions that let people know how it is and remind them how it was seen at the time. Like that is valuable to have because otherwise people won't know and there won't be a, a way of understanding our past and what we've come from. So what do we what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that the French connection has been censored to keep people safe? I guess I don't I don't even know why. Uh, Peter. It's some sort of controversy. And it's even more than that. It's a controversy that this sort of thing keeps happening. Alyssa. It's a controversy and it's catastrophically dumb on behalf of whatever entity did this. You're an idiot. Stop censoring historically important movies. It's obviously a controversy. And the thing that I, I find most grating about it is just how ugly and clumsy it is on top of everything else, on top of the attitude that it betrays and the the cowardice or whatever w was behind it. Just like if you're going to do this sort of thing, try and at least make it like like dub in a different word or something. I don't know, but don't just don't just cut it and stitch it back together and be like, all right, that's fine. That's, that's this fine. is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. Exactly. Something like that. Something anyway. All right. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode, uh, which we'll be discussing the toys from our childhood. Uh, we hope to see in movies or maybe fear will be made into movies. I don't know. One one in the same, I think. Real monkey's paw thing going on. All right. And now on to the main event. Transformers Rise of the Beasts. It's the second prequel to the Transformers series. It comes on the heels of Bumblebee, which uh, was generally liked by critics and audiences, but a bit of a financial misfire. Um, here, the action is set in New York City in 1994, where the Transformers are hanging out as refugees from their home world of Cybertron. 
after Elena Wallace, who's played by Dominique Fishback, accidentally uncovers and activates a thingamajig that will help Optimus Prime, uh, who's voiced, as always, by Peter Cullen, uh, and his team of robots slash cars slash airplanes slash other conveyances uh, escape the Earth. Uh, to make the thingamajig work, they'll have to find a doohickey in South America with the aid of Noah Diaz, who's played by Anthony Ramos. Uh, the doohickey is being guarded by the Maximals, which are like robot animals. It's like Optimus Prime and his Autobots, except, you know, monkeys and ravens. Uh, and they they also have been hanging out on Earth weirdly. They're And they're, these two groups of giant robots that change into other things are totally oblivious to each other. They've, they've been sharing this of all the worlds and all the universe. They both came here and uh, didn't know about it. That's weird. Anyway, the Heralds of Galactus, I'm sorry, uh, Unicron, uh, are also trying to get the thingamajig and the doohickey so they can bring Galactus... Uh, sorry, it's Unicron. Not why do I keep saying Galactus, Peter? I don't understand. To Earth, so uh, you know, so he, so Galactus. Oh God, I'm sorry. I keep doing it. I can eat Earth, uh, and then Cybertron, and then a bunch of other planets. So the robots punch each other for a while, and they shoot some missiles, and everyone calls it a day. Only for the movie to end on the most groan-inducing tease. You'll see until you see Flash next weekend. All right, so here's the thing. Uh, this is this is far from the worst movie I've ever seen. It's not the worst movie I've ever... I've seen more incompetent films, and I've seen films that bored me more than this, uh, kind of. Like this week, uh, right? Well, uh, we'll get to that. Uh, but but it is this is among the most pointless movies I've ever seen. I, it really is so blandly competent and completely impersonal in a way that like perpetuates the brand of the movie and the toys without doing anything interesting or daring. My main thought while watching it, again, aside from a general sense of boredom, was to just, I was like sitting there begging for the visual insanity and manic boyish glee of Michael Bay. Uh, and that's wild because I don't even actually like the Michael Bay Transformers movies. I actually resented them. I resented the existence of the Michael Bay Transformers movies for taking him away from more interesting stuff for us. Like, I want I want 10 painting games, not 10 Transformer movies. I want five ambulances, not the, the one with the drunk Merlin. And half the time, when I was sitting there watching it, I actually felt like I was going to throw up. Just I oftentimes felt like I was about to vomit from watching things on the screen that Michael Bay had put there. But at least I felt something. At least I felt a thing. And I felt nothing at all while watching this. Just absolute annoyance that uh, it exists and is stripped of all personality. I don't know. I don't know. Peter, you seem to like this movie more than I did, judging by your review. But didn't you miss the Bayhem? Didn't, don't you miss the Bayhem? Didn't I miss it? I, I, I missed bits of it. So I, I think Michael Bay put together a couple of good action sequences throughout his five movies, uh, <laughs> his five uh, Transformers films, right? So there's the, the, first mo the first Transformers movie is just a legit, great, crazy blockbuster. I don't think it's, great is maybe a little bit too strong, but it's it really works on its own terms. It delivers on the promise of a Transformers cinematic experience, right, in a way that none of the other films have managed to live up to. And then after that, he just kind of went nuts and uh, and allowed him, like, and the studio allowed him to just make movies that were increasingly more incoherent. And that created certain interesting opportunities. The second one, for example, has a sequence set uh, at the pyramids in Egypt. And I can, I can never find the website that did this, but there was a website that published an FAQ that tried to explain the plot. 
and the movie's existence was worth it just for this because you could see sort of in their explanation how absolutely little sense it made and how like even trying to put it into words just made you feel like your your brain was made of cotton candy and he's just like just like being reduced into into kind of blithering nothingness and then the third film has a has a couple of great bits in chicago where like there's a, a transformer bad guy that splits buildings in half and that's pretty cool i forget what happened in the fourth one. Oh, the fourth one has the gravity stuff the gravity stuff's pretty good uh, although michael bay recycled it in his netflix movie six underground it's like the same thing but the gravity stuff at the end in china is pretty good. And then the fifth one, the fifth one starts with Stanley Tucci, who was in the series previously as a different character, but now he's playing drunk Merlin and he's riding a horse to a cave so that he could argue with a three-headed robot dragon. And that's like drunkenly as Merlin. And then it flashes forward to the, I don't know, the future or something. And it's, but like, there's a whole prologue set in Merlin times. And I will defend those movies as, as uh, like, do I miss them? I miss some of the, the craziness of them. But what I didn't miss, what I didn't miss was the total, like, kind of almost painful incoherence of them, where especially between the standout signature bits, Michael Bay just let his actors, his sort of like the sort of the story stuff go nuts in a way that I found frequently kind of grating, especially the first three films with Shia LaBeouf, uh, who is just is like, oh, kind of painful to, to watch. And this movie actually tries to tell a story about characters that you can understand. And I won't say it's a great story, but I will say it's a story about characters that you can understand. And that's something that Michael Bay never bothered to do. And I think it's actually worth pointing out that this is a movie about characters and you can understand the characters, who they are, what they want, and what they're doing at all times. And that's that's something. And this, this is, is this is I this understand is slander. <laughs> I understand this is slander. It's not slander. Um, also, like you, you messed up your plot description because you said that this they had they found a, a whatsama jigger and then had to go find a doohickey. And it's actually just the yeah. second half of the whatsama jigger that they found they it, had to go find, not yeah, a completely different second thing. It's an entirely different second thing because it's a discrete second thing that they have to find. It's they the have other two, half two. of the transwarp no, you're, key. You're, you're, I'm sorry, I have to push back against your description of the Michael Bay Transformer movies. I, for one, always identified strongly with Cade Yeager. Yeah. Uh, who Which is a real Mark name. Wahlberg. You know, he someone had, could he had have. a lot of things. He had a lot of things that he, he had goals. I, re, I seem to remember him having goals that he wanted to accomplish, and the Transformers helped him get that. I remember and there's Shia a scene. LaBeouf's character, Sam Witwicky, yeah. uh, <laughs> wanted to have a car so girls would be attracted to him. And that's that's a, as good that's as much motivation as anybody needs in any of these movies. That is that is all you need from the giant robots punching each other movies. I'm sorry. Okay, so there's a scene in one of the Michael Bay Transformers movies, I don't remember which one, in which a Transformer kind of pees or let, lets some liquid out from a, 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 right on John a body area onto John Turturro's head. And you definitely don't get a robot peeing on John Turturro's head in this movie. On the other hand, you get characters who have clear motivations at a story that you can basically summarize and basically understand and action sequences that aren't exceptional, but are reasonably clear. And what I appreciated about this was that it wasn't grating ever. At no point was I like, oh, I can't stand to watch this. It's not all that artful. It's not all that great a movie. It doesn't have any standout bits. 
but it tries to just sort of like it tries to bring you in, make you care about the characters a little bit. And then it does some some robot fighting stuff. And it's two hours and seven minutes. And and that's fine. And I like it didn't overstay its welcome. And I guess partly also because of some other things I've seen recently, which we haven't talked about yet, but we will. <coughs> the Flash. We will. Uh, like it. We will. It. The fact the Flash that it, is a million times better than this. That's wrong. And the fact that it didn't grate on me and didn't make me want to stand up and leave, I felt like I can just watch these robots Big punch way. each other for a couple more minutes and wait till the credits roll. I was, I was, I won't say like thrilled, but I didn't mind it. I didn't mind this movie. That's my recommendation. Transformers: Rise of the Beast. I didn't mind it. Peter Sutherman reason. I, uh, <laughs> Alyssa, I want to ask you a very specific question. Um, and, and it's this, does this movie understand how prequels work and how dramatic stakes work? Because it doesn't seem to me that it does. Cause there are several moments where they're like, oh no, this transformer is dead. Except we know that he's in five more transformers <laughs> movies after this. They're like, oh no, Optimus Prime is going to sacrifice himself. And the other characters are literally, they're paying tribute to him. They're like, your sacrifice is our oath. And then it's like, wait, but we know he's not going <laughs> to die. He's, he can't die. He's got a, he's got a billion more of these movies to make in the future. We've seen them. We've seen the movie. Alyssa, does this movie understand dramatic stakes? Go. I sort of thought you were going to ask me if this movie passes the Bechdel test, which is a far funnier question to consider. <laughs> Do robot women count as women? Do robot ravens voiced by Michelle Yeoh count as women specifically? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, she was awesome. I mean, she's incredible. I hope, like, I, I really hope that she took the money that she was paid for this movie and was just like, I'm going to buy jewels. I'm going to buy a lot of jewels. And I'm just going to like sit in my house and wear them tastefully and glamorously because I'm Michelle Yeoh and I have an Academy Award and also now more money that I can use to buy jewels. Um, no, of course, this movie doesn't understand dramatic irony or prequels or foreshadowing or any of this stuff. I mean, uh, I will be honest, my brain is broken because the minute Peter mentioned that insane previous Transformers review, um, I started looking for it and I also can't find it. I think it must have been on either Deadspin or Grantland. No, it was it was on a it was on a site called Giant Freaking Robot or something like or Topless Robot, something yeah. like that. Robot was definitely in the name. Okay, Hold on. listeners, we're going to have to give you a bounty um, if you can find us this review because it was so funny. Uh, and it was definitely funnier and more entertaining than anything that has happened in any of the Transformers franchises except for Drunk Merlin. Um, look, this is not a particularly good movie. And it's also, I, I fear that it is going to end up being sort of a case study in the way sort of, look, let me back up a second. It's not going to be a case study in anything because nobody will be thinking about this movie in two weeks. But it is an interesting example of the ways in which talented, interesting performers get kind of swept up into this sort of blockbuster nonsense, right? Like, I like Anthony Ramos Jr. quite a bit. Um, you know, he, sorry, Anthony Ramos, he's not actually a junior as far as I can tell. Um, you know, he was lovely and in the Heights. You know, he is really quite nice in this in the early scenes where Noah is struggling to get a job, trying to help his brother. Um, Sonny, the fact that you feel nothing suggests to me that you just hate 10-year-olds with sickle cell anemia. Um, because, you know, he's he's effectively human in the movie, in the scenes where he gets to, like, be a human being and have human feelings and do human things. Similarly, I love Dominique Fishback. I think she is great. She actually has been a 
you know, sort of a part of the David Simon stable for a while. Um, her work in Show Me a Hero is really lovely. Um, ditto in The Deuce. She's a really good and she does in The Black Messiah. And here she's in this just like completely stupid, thankless Girl Friday scientist role where she has to like run around and like not lose her backpack and like write things on her arm in Sharpie. Um, and, you know, it is just, it is such a bummer to see talented, interesting people get used this way, right? And look, like, Stephen Capel is not a terrible director. Like, I, I mean, I think we all liked Creed too, which he directed quite a bit. You know, he has some, you know, faculty with actors. You know, I don't know if you, if either of you saw this sort of pre-roll when you saw this movie, but when I saw it at the Alamo on Friday, there was actually like a little pre-roll about him talking about like how much they enjoyed shooting in Peru and how sort of eager he was for people to see that. And it is a little interesting to have one of these movies that instead of going to like 47 different locations goes to one place. Um, I mean, the message of this movie is that like there are indigenous people in Peru and they will keep your secrets and then like you will tear up all of their, you know, like terrorist agriculture at historical sites with giant robots. But it's still, you know, there's some, there is an intelligence lurking somewhere deep under the sedimentary layers of this film. And it is a bummer that the nature of blockbuster making in Hollywood seems to be to pile on those layers of sediment as quickly as possible. Look, the Peru stuff is like so much of the rest of this movie where you have essentially table dressing diversity. Like that the does, doesn't really serve that much purpose except to be like, look, here we are in Peru with the natives. It, it, like the whole sequence with uh, Dominique Fishback's character and her boss, who's like taking all her credit and, you know, being like the just I don't know that all that stuff was was, again, like vaguely annoying because I don't I don't come to the giant robots punching each other movie for the people not interested in that. I, I'm totally uninterested in that. Just want to watch the robots punch each other in vaguely incoherent ways. I don't know. I was hoping for vaguely coherent ways. I, coherence. I don't think coherence does this series any favors, frankly. I mean, I, I think it. I think you need the the whirl a gig nonsense camera moves. Of the, I mean, and that's just the thing about this movie is like everything is shot so like competently but blandly. There's there there was never a, like a big soaring heroic moment where I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting and exciting. It was just like, okay, it's all here. It's here's the cutscene that you're watching now. I don't know, man. I like this movie just annoyed well, me. I, I guess I would say that it never fully lives up to that. It tries, though. And there's moments when, especially in the second half of the film, the movie really does try to deliver some big hero shots. I don't think that any of them ever quite deliver. But there's that bit, you know, with Optimus Prime, like standing on the mountain in the background. And it's, again, it's like this is almost what i really want from a transformers movie the the this is almost the you know more spielbergian classical you know blockbuster that i i like imagine being made out of this franchise it's not it like i said it's it's not a great movie i don't want to defend this too much but i really it was sort of sweet at times and goofy and it never it just it didn't bother me and that's actually that's weirdly a compliment in today's blockbuster environment. I've seen so many of these big effects heavy franchise films over the past year or so where I've just been like, what are you doing? This is annoying. And this movie never rises to the level of, wow, that's really good. But it also never annoyed me. And that's genuinely 
genuinely a compliment. Again, I we're, you're ta- the phrase I have used to describe this movie to everyone I meet. I just walk up to people on the streets and I'm like, you know what? Transformers: Rise of the Beasts is it's blandly competent. Do you want bland competence in your movies? I got a movie for you, stranger. And and like whatever. Like again, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen, but it it just also like it just exists. It just lays there. And I'm just like, go do something interesting on the screen. Do something interesting with the thingamajigs and the the whozits and Galactus. We haven't even really talked about Unicron at all. Terrible, terrible character design there. It's just a big, big ball crashing into another big ball. (laughs) But that's (laughs) stupid. That's just stupid. Unicron, that's the character from the source material, the incredibly richly imagined and serious source material that they couldn't possibly depart from, you know, because it was a 1980s cartoon meant to sell toys. And Orson Welles played Unicron in the 1980s movie. I was going to say, why not... We have all this AI technology now. Why can't we have AI Orson Welles saying the lines? I suspect for the same reason. Desecrate his corpse. If they desecrated his corpse, at least that would be interesting. (laughs) Instead of what we got. Nothing. I suspect that the reason that we can't have that is the same reason that you can't see the full French connection in the United States. There's licensing issues. Orson Welles is an IP (laughs) at this point. And like probably someone would have to sign off on that. Orson Welles would come back and haunt you. <laughs> yeah, once you die, does your voice go into the the? I guess I guess your voice probably would go into the public domain, but like the actual things would not. But if you just use the AI to train your Orson Welles I voice, I don't know the legal issues, but I suspect that if you made a, an AI voice of Orson Welles and put it into a very big budget studio film, that the estate of Orson Welles would sue you if. You didn't have the rights to do so. Yeah, that's probably it's probably not allowed. All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Transformers Rise of the Beast? Peter. Didn't mind it. Thumbs up. Ugh, Alyssa. Thumbs down. Just go see Across the Spider-Verse again, which I did on Saturday and which I highly recommend to everyone. Thumbs down. I, I don't think I've liked a single one of these movies. Uh, and I may <laughs> I may have actually disliked most of the Michael Bay movies more than this one. But I still at least like... I was at least there's something there. There's some like spark of personality that exists in those movies that is totally absent here. Just it's just a just nothing. This movie didn't even give me a headache. Is your point? This movie? (laughs) No, this movie. I want. I when I go see a Transformers movie, I want to see it in the biggest IMAX screen possible, and I want to come out of it with my ears bleeding. And thinking that I've just been in like a hurricane simulator. That's what I want. And this gave me none of that. The last one I saw, the last one I saw, the drunk Merlin one, I literally like was woozy getting up out of my chair. My like legs were rubbery because it was so much. And like, again, it's not a good movie exactly, but at least I I felt something. At least I felt something. You just want to be dominated by Optimus Prime for two hours. Uh, well, that is, and that's, uh, all right, my one serious thought about this movie is that the only reason, the only time any of these movies work, really, is when Peter Cullen is, like, delivering Optimus Prime Zen battle cones, just like when he's, when he's just, like, pro- proclaiming things in front of, and it's on this day that we, I, like, I, that's, that's what I want from a Transformers movie. I want Optimus Prime saying things. That's it. That's all I want. All right. That's it for this week's show. Uh, make sure to make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends. 
strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love this episode, and you, you might not have, you might be very mad at me, because I've said a lot of things on this show that uh, are going to get a rise out of people. Feel free to complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. Uh, I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. Or maybe not. I don't know. I, I've not been doing a very good job of that recently. See you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>